So if you have a Bible and there's plenty in the windowsills, if you would open up to the book of Song of Songs, our penultimate sermon in this short series, but one which um, many of you have said doesn't often get explored um, um, from up front, and so we've done that. And I've told a number of you, I wasn't sure we were going to do this even up to the Saturday before week one, because it's, it's, um, it's a lot of work, a song of songs. Um, however, it is scripture, and in that God is speaking to us. And I pray, Lord, um, not for us, but to you be all the glory and praise for your love and your faithfulness in Christ. Amen. And I often feel as if for, for those who are here for the first time um, or are visiting that I need to get through a sort of wee introduction of what's happening in Song of Songs. And, uh, but I can't do that because it's too much. But in effect, how I'm looking at Song of Songs um, is that it is a, a love, a series of love songs, love poems between a man and a woman. I'm not taking it allegorically, uh, but you can take it allegorically. You can see that there is lots in here that speaks of our relationship between um, God and ourselves. But I am looking at it, and it's sometimes a little bit erotic, but I am looking at it as being scripture, and scripture that speaks of love between a man and a woman. And I, again, my focus today will be a lot on marriages, but you can take a lot of that into relationships. So if you find yourself single for all sorts of reasons, um, there is still lots that you can take from this, I am sure. So I, I ask, don't switch off, don't fall asleep, um, because you think, well, this has got nothing to do with me. Um, but I am going to be focusing um, on marriages in particular. So, where did we get to last time? Um, and this Song of Songs, which is the, means the greatest of all love songs, if you would open up to chapter 6, um, and just keep that open in Song of Songs, chapter 6. We are going to go through two full chapters today. Um, I'm going to do my absolute bestest with that. Um, where, where we are at this point, there is trouble in the marriage. They've, they've, they've courted, they've done all of that flirting, they've done all of that temptation, they, they have been married, they've consummated their marriage, and then there was trouble in the marriage. Um, after a long night, the lover, which is the man, returns home, uh, and he wanted to be with his Shulamite bride, and uh, he knocks on the door, and she says this in the chapter before, in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 3. He's chapping on the door. He's come home to be with his bride who he is head over heels with. He loves, he adores. And, and he's like, here I am, honey. And she says this, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it back on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? In other words, she rejects him, his advances. And um, he went away in the huff. He disappeared. She came to her senses. She, she went to try and find him. She could not find him. And our marriages, our relationships go through things like this. They are not immune to conflict, to, to 
two different um, desires or emotions bouncing off each other like the wrong end of magnets type of thing, uh, or the similar ends of magnets. Our relationships and our marriages have conflict in them, and we see this here, because stuff happens in life. Is that just me, or are you all saying, yep, you're right? Yep, you're right, great. I'm just making sure that I'm not putting myself out there for undue criticism. I like other people to be beside me when that happens. Conflict is never far away in relationships. Conflict is never far away in marriages. I heard, and I, I just came to mind here, I heard someone say at the, in a, a sermon months ago, and he was for the States, and he was saying to young couples, um, marriage doesn't make you happy. Don't get married to be happy. That is not the reason to get married. Because what you're going to find out is that two worlds are going to collide. And so he says, don't make that the foundation of your marriage. Happiness. There's so much more. And happiness can be there, of course. But that cannot be the, primar the primary thing. And how often I've heard couples say to me, I'm just not happy anymore. I want to be happy. I want to discover the real me again. Etc, etc, etc. So we're left in a kind of cliffhanger. What does the man do? Does he get upset? Does he disappears? Um, is this a game changer? He goes back to his roots. We see at the end of it, he goes back to his roots to the place where the love was first ignited. She meets him there and they're down um, by the lilies. But will he be angry? And now we're going to read um, chapter 6 and from verse 4 through to about 10, something like that. You are beautiful, my darling, as Tiraz, Tirza, lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me, they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from wash the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favourite of the one who bore her. The maidens saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. Who is this that appears like the dawn? Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession. So we see here that he is not miffed. He is not irritated. He is not in a grudge. There's been conflict in the relationship, but he's He's left that to the side. He's dealt with it. He, he's been a grown-up and not a wee boy, and he's dealt with conflict within the relationship. And what you have here is that one of, again, he does this a few times. He's done this in chapter four. He's doing it in chapter six again. A, just a whole poem, a whole song of adoration of his kindred spirit, of the one in which he loves. She still, after whatever time it has been, she still captures, and probably more so, I would suggest, captures his heart. So much so that in verse 5, he says this, Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. You're beautiful 
as the northern city of Tizra and as lovely as the southern city of Jerusalem from top to toe you are awesome you are gorgeous you are well built it's a very strange compliment I know but that's what he's getting at you've captured my heart so now turn your your eyes from me I am overwhelmed with who you are and what you look like she looks in many ways exactly as she did before. And we see this here afterwards with all the description of hair and her teeth and her cheeks. They've not lost that natural attractiveness as he describes before in chapter 4 in some more detail. However, I'm suge I suggest the change from chapter 4 where he describes her hair and her teeth and all of that sort of stuff. And how he then describes in chapter 6 the same thing, her hair, pomegranate, cheeks and all of that. There is an absence of an erotic nature. Very erotic in chapter 4. It's his, his wedding day and she is veiled. And even in that veiled position, he comes up with the most amazing things to say about his kindred spirit. We referred weeks and weeks and weeks ago that our culture wants to unveil everything. That's the only value to have everything exposed and to see the beauty. In scripture, we're seeing a veiled beauty and it is beautiful. It is glorious. It captures the heart. It intrigues all the further. But in chapter 6, it's lost. Why is it lost? Don't forget, they've just had a little tiff about sex or not having it. And so here is he is reunited in the place where the love was first blossomed. He describes her in the exact same ways. But he, re he removes all the sexual references. Possibly saying to him, you're more than just a thing to me. There's more to your beauty than just that physical. Much, much more. And I'm wanting to express it in this way. Maybe that's what's going on. I, I sense anyway, maybe it is. And above all those who look on with reputation or with title or with things to offer like queens and wives and concubines, he says that he desires her and her alone. Sixty queens there may be, and eighty concubines, and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one, who remember sets off the, the stallions of, her, of Pharaoh's chariots as a mare amongst all of those stallions, that is what my kindred spirit is like. And I'm seeing beyond all of that that our culture praises and whips up and the water that our young people swim in far too often. And I'm seeing you as being of much more value than all of those things that are offered to me, reputation and titles and whatever I so would desire. That is not as is worth to me because you are my dove, my perfect one. You are unique. You're the only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who has bore her. The maiden saw you and they called you blessed. The queens and even the concubines praise you. What you have here, again, in a culture that does not praise this, 
we need to read this as a one woman man or a one man woman. She is unique and he is uniquely made for her. So let me flesh out one or two wee things as, as I just begin to move on to the next section. He refers to Jerusalem. He refers to uh, Teraz. And he's referring to his wife, who is referred to as the Shulamite. Jerusalem is known as the city of peace. Shulamite means peace-filled one. And Terza, when you, which was the, a northern city, uh, when the, the cities divided in Solomon's time, that was the first capital in the north. So you had the first capital in the north, and you had the, the city of peace, Jerusalem, the capital. And you had the Shulamite, the peace-filled one. And you had this word ter, Terza, which means um, to desire or to take pleasure in. So like these famous cities, from the top to the toe, you have the woman who is beautiful and desirable, who is the source of his peace, makes him up, completes him, brings him peace. That's the picture we have here with the reference to Jerusalem, to the Shulamite and Terza. And again, I, I go over this again and again. Marriage is more than sex. The emphasis here is on other things that he appreciates about her. And that happens in our relationships. We get to know each other a little bit more. We see each other through the vulnerable times. Uh, we, we support one another. Often my prayer for couples um, um, is that when one is strong, the other will be weak. And when the other is weak, the other will be strong. And those two become one in Christ. And then through that whole process, I'm not saying the physical does not matter, but there's much, much, much more. And we sense this here and how he describes his kindred spirit. And your spouse should be your friend. I'll say it again, your spouse should be your best friend. There may be all sorts of reasons why that has not happened, but it should be. Surely common sense says it should be. I was with someone over at Fanab Castle uh, a week ago and he was describing his wife. And he was describing his wife who is now with the Lord as my best friend. And I got it. I understood that fully. And I celebrated, although I lamented with him that he's lost his wife far too uh, early, far too soon, but he spoke of his love and the one he missed, and the one he adored, who made him. And that was a modern day testimony. Here we have it in Song of Songs as well. And in verse 10, who is this that appears? That brings us full circle in this little section. This little section of poems, of songs, started in chapter 3, verse 6, at the beginning of the wedding procession, where he... Uh, um, where, where the question is asked, who is this that comes out of the wilderness? And there's this image, and I've spoke a lot about that, why I, I, I suggest it wasn't Solomon, but don't need to go there. But coming out of the wilderness, and it was a wedding procession, here you have, who is this? Not coming out of the wilderness, but coming out of glory, as it were. Who is this? Or coming out of the heavens. 
that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, heavenly elements, bright as the sun, heavenly elements, majestic as the stars in procession, heavenly language, not from the dust or from the dirt. But who's this one that I love and I see and I can see more in their glory because I know them, because they're my friend, because I'm meant to be with them. So what was the conversation like after conflict? Well, he's gone from praising her to her face in verses 4 to 7 to then praising her in the crowd. And you see that's what's happening in verse 8 to 10. You get in your Bible lots of things that say friends or lovers or Shulamite, etc. That's pretty much guesswork. Pretty good guesswork, but guesswork. And there's some inconsistencies in some of our Bibles on that. But that's later things that people have just added in. It's not scripture. I'm suggesting that he not only praises her to her face, which is so important in our relationships, and then he also does it in a crowd, unashamedly celebrating it. And so what do, what do I suggest we do with that? Well, our, our culture and the culture that, our, and I've said this time and time and time again, our culture that, that our young people, our children are swimming in, that we have to teach contrary to, says that it's um, quantity above quality. We've heard that time and time again. Try before you buy. That's as old as the hills, that saying. Imagine this game show. I don't know. Surprise, surprise or something like that. Something for the 80s or 90s. A game show where through door one, you get 40 plus men and women for you to choose from. Um, the, the experience of, of sex and the, the experience of desire is vast. But it's fleeting. And then through door two, you, you open it and there's the option of one man or one woman where you experience intimacy and it is deep. But it's uniquely restricted. What would you choose? I was at a school event this week, Anne Frank event that some of the children were showing some invited guests around. And I was there with some retired teachers from Pilocker High School, lovely, great people. And they were asking about my children and one of, the say, one of them said about Josh, my son Josh, who's 24. He's been married three years now uh, to Beth. Someone just says, oh, Josh is married. And one or two of them turned around. Oh, yeah, he's been married for three years. And again, someone nearly spilt their coffee. <laughs> See, I'm not making this up. And then the question was asked, what age is he? And he goes, 24. When did he get married? Do the math. You're a teacher. <laughs> 21. And they were stunned. What would you choose for your children? Try before you buy. And I know some of us have gotten, you know, we, we, we raised our children to the best of our ability. And you know what? They become adults and that, they, they make their choices. But what would we desire for our children? Intimacy? Depth? Or some shallow veneer? We see here in the Song of Songs which is scripture, which is teaching us as followers of Jesus Christ to affirmed marriage. The love between a man and a woman. So songs along with all the wisdom literature says it's better to have one partner 
that's a fit for you than 140 plus experiences that conveniently leave you in the, the morning. Quantity of partners that does not equate to quality of love. Here's another thing I want to just throw in here. Relationships need constant um, attention, constant maintenance, and we know that. Leave your garden for a couple of weeks in Pitlochry from those from the States. If we leave our garden for a couple of weeks in Pitlochry over a hot and wet summer, we come back to a jungle. We're, don't we? we need to constantly maintain it. And our relationships are either moving towards order and health or, or disorder and, and unhealth unless we commit to maintaining it. Open door dialogue. And that is for marriages as well as our relationships. Imagine a wife saying this, you never tell me that you love me. And the husband says, don't you remember the 3rd of August 1932? <laughs> I think James said this a few weeks ago. God is constantly reminding us of his love. That's maintaining a relationship. We need to hear he loves us. We know it, but we need to hear that time and time again. What's the difference in our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ? My favorite on that one, or my, 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 I mean that tongue-in-cheek, is where someone comes up to me and says, eh, you don't know this, but for about five years I've held this against you, and, but, but now I've resolved it with the Lord, and I don't hate you anymore. <laughs> what do you do with that? What did you tell me for? I didn't know. There's ways of maintaining a relationship. And, it, you know, it's wisdom. It's common sense. Some of the time, some people don't have common sense, but right enough. Um, their love relationship was constantly being maintained. He was telling her to her face again about her hair, her cheeks, her, her, her whatever it was, her lips, and all of that sort of stuff. And he was also telling other people, that's maintenance. We need to communicate. We need to tell each other. See, I don't think none of us really knew what we were signing up to when we get married. For those of us who are married, I, um, Miranda didn't know she was signing up to the ministry. She, Miranda is, third, her dad and her granddad, both ministers, great ministers. And so she knows what it means to grow up in the manse, and she always promised that she would never marry a minister, a pastor. And when she married me, I was an engineer. Uh, she didn't know what she was signing up to in that respects, that she was signing up to, to warfare, to ministry. And, and ministry is warfare. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities that stand against us. So our relationships work in a theatre of war. We don't always know what we're getting into with our relationships. So we need to cultivate them. We need to com communicate all the time. And I think there's a myth about compatibility. And why do I say that? You know, you know, people say, oh, they're made for each other. Oh, opposites attract and all that sort of stuff. <sighs> people change. I, praise God, people change. I do not want to be the same person I was 35 years ago when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. I change. It's up to me to cultivate that, to partner with Christ, with the Holy Spirit, and how that change will transform me into the likeness of Christ. And that's me as a disciple, but it's also me as a husband, and it's also me as a father. We parented Josh, our eldest, much differently when we parented Luca, 
There was a lot of similarities. And Luca grew up as the last of four. Baby number last we called him, or I called him. He grew up in that culture that had already been established in our family. And in this church family, he grew up in this church family. But being the last, Josh would say he'd get away with murder. Because we change and we develop. Sometimes we slack off and sometimes we get better at things. So this myth about compatibility. I am not married to the same person I married 28 years ago. Because it's all about change and becoming and developing. And I know that is not the case for everyone here. And I do not um, intend to, to put the spotlight. I'm just testifying to what I believe is scriptural and common sense as well. So song demonstrates that love and desire in marriage needs to be cultivated. It should be matured beyond the dating. And they went through the dating. And it should be cultivated beyond the marriage. And we can see here in this passage, it has went beyond that. I'm going to be shorter in the things I'm going to say next. But let's read. Um, let's just jump to chapter 7. And I'm going to do a wee bit of reading here. Okay. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, your work of a craftsman's hand. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is like a mound of wheat. First time I read that, I read meat, but it's wheat. Your waist is a, a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bath-Rabin. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. And that's a compliment. Your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Your hair is like royal tapestry. The king is held captive by its tresses. How beautiful you are and how pleasing. O oh, love with your delight. Your stature is like that of the palm and your breasts like clusters of fruit. If I say I climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine. I'll stop there because I'm going to come to that in a minute. So what's different, again, another descriptive thing, I'm going to be very brief here and say, there is a, a difference here. He's described a lot of this in the past, chapter 4 and other places. And what's the difference here? Well, one of the things I can see is that he describes her from the feet up. And the other description, it's head down. This time he's going feet up. And I love what one cultivator called Druin, I think his name was. He said, and he suggests, by describing her from the feet up, he is exalting her. Isn't that a good thought? He is looking at his wife, the one who's growing old with, let's put it that way, and he is exalting her by the way in which he describes her. And then we get graceful legs, we get uh, like jewels, and we get navels like rounded goblets. Her waist is like, uh, I put a wound of wheat, a mound of wheat encircled by lilies, her breasts like two fawns, etc. Her pornographic Obsessed culture gets this, goes for this. But these are descriptions of fertility. These are descriptions of good things. Things of beauty and desire, but not twisted obsessions. She's not an objectified body. That's not what we're reading here. In verse 4, he goes on to describe five elements of her upper body. Her neck, her eyes, her nose, her hair. 
in others. And these are to describe the elements that he's already described from below. He values her as a whole person. He values her not as a sexual object. I spoke, I don't often repeat my sermons, and I may have said this already, but I spoke to 100 plus teenagers for four days about discipleship, young leaders in Scotland about a month or so ago before I went to the States. And I took this, this theme of the marriage and song of songs in the Sunday morning and I gave them good old-fashioned Bible study and they were drinking it up. They were loving it. Not because of the person delivering it, but they were loving getting into technicalities and depth in God's word. And once I just spoke about the consummation of the marriage and the love of the marriage and all of that, and I celebrated it as coming from scripture in this sex-obsessed culture, the purity in that, they then went into their groups. And I heard this back from some of the group leaders. The boys, and I understand that because I'm a boy, they were kind of like, all right, just tell us what we can do and what we can't do. You know, just tell us, tell us, tell us. But the girls in that whole description of, of you know, under the veil and all of that, the girls were gobsmacked because they were, the woman was not an object. The woman was not sexualized. These young girls of the age of 15 to 17 or 18 cottoned on to that Grab that from scripture. I'm valuable and I'm not a sexual object. I was heartened when I came, when, when I heard about that. And it's great to, to be attracted to your spouse. And I don't mean by Western, eh, modern Western standards, because standards, modern Western standards are just modern Western standards. They will come and they will go. But I, I ask this question to you of those of you who are married. Who are you married to? I don't mean a name. How would you describe the person that you are married to? We see it in Song of Songs. How would you describe that person? There might be a little bit of, um, you might not be able to, because your spouse may not be a believer in Christ. And so you might not be able to add that element, but there may be hope in there. There may be, therefore, a call to prayer in there and witness in there. But how would you describe it? And some of you will find that an incredibly difficult question to answer because you're going through unbelievable turmoil. And you may speak out of a hard place and not be able to say good things. And that ship may have sailed, I do not know. But I would think for the vast majority of here, I would say, who is your kindred spirit? Or to parents, who are you praying into your family through your children? Are you laying that just now? Are you praying and laying that before the Lord? Are you maintaining that? Are you giving one another time for that to go somewhere good? The man's desire for the woman has matured. And in fact, and I'm going to read this now, he utters some of the most explicit words I would say, suggest that are in scripture if we were to do a study on it and we're not going to this morning. But this is where he emphasizes the beauty of maturing love. Chapter 7 and verse 8, he says this. I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breast be like the clusters of the vine. 
the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. And this is her response. I belong to my lover and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Take time out. <laughs> let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded. If their blossoms have opened and if the pomegranates are in bloom, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my love. Bitterness in our relationships, if unchecked, robs us of so much. The key to maturing love is not the absence of conflict in our relationships, but it's um, actually strengthened if we work through it maturely. But if we fail to forgive, if we just sort of blur the lines on forgiveness, and sometimes we rip each other's knitting, sometimes we really struggle with one another, but if we allow bitterness and unforgiveness to just go places and we try to sweep it under the carpet and all the other things, resentment builds and it's like a, a, a crack in a windscreen of our car. It's there, we know it's there. It's not causing too much damage. It's just a wee chip. We can put up with it. It's not in the line of sight. It's just down in the corner. We know that something could happen. Another stone gets fired up. Another bit of conflict comes. Something unexpected at the most inappropriate time. And that windshield just spreads like that. And smashes into a million pieces. Bitterness left unchecked in our relationships. Whether it be between brothers and sisters in Christ. Or whether it be between kindred spirits. And unforgiveness is not resolved. <gasps> leads to death, leads to destruction, is not what we are called to. We cannot avoid conflict, but we can respond biblically. Ephesians says this, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. My wife is a pest when it comes to this scripture. My wife and I... Oh, my wife, I love her, but she loves to talk things over. And I am like a guy, I just want to go, I'm sorry, move on. Or, or there's been times where I've been so bitter in my, my anger and, and that I've left the house in the car and I've left my phone and she doesn't know where I am. And she's worried and she's had me dead many times, she would admit. And even when we come back, she will sit us down and she will get us talking about it. She does that. I find it hard to do that. But she holds fast to the scripture. Do not let the sun go down. My wife may give me a number of hours, eight hours in the day, but she will not go to sleep with us in a bad mood ever. 
And for those who are guys and know what I'm feeling, you know that's hard, but it's right and it's biblical. So in our relationships, we will be offended, we will be disappointed, we will be in conflict, but don't let that bitterness grow. Work through it. Talk about it. Forgive as the Lord Jesus forgave you. And in our marriages, celebrate it. Speak to one another about it. Rather than remaining quiet, and I'm going to stop there because I was going to say something else, but I'm not. Can I pray? And in that prayer, I'm going to invite us just to respond one, one way or another. Um, I'm, uh, so let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word that is alive. Father, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you that you're here. And may your kingdom come and your will be done in this place, I pray in the name of Christ Jesus. I thank you for this unbelievable picture of love that we know where to go to when people challenge us on that, that the song is the greatest of all song, that you have authored this, Lord God, you've inspired this, and you've given it to us now in our time in a culture that is so obsessed by twisting what you have made beautiful into its own image. I pray, Lord God, for those in our church family who are in relationships, who are in marriages, and I pray, Lord God, that they would be a, um, um, an example of man-woman relationship in their extended family and in our community. I pray that their children, when they look on to uh, the, the couples, would um, have the example that they need for the time when they will be going in the hope to find their kindred spirit. Lord, I pray that you would protect as we hear from time to time that there's others who are actively praying against Christian marriage. We hold up those who are married in this place and ask, Lord God, that you would protect, that you would cultivate, that you would lead by your spirit, that there would be humility, it would be based around your word and in your spirit, Lord God, um, that you would transform into just that bride that you describe um, in your scriptures, that these marriages in our midst and the marriages that we know of who have been praying for would be just like that. Pray, Father God, for those who do not experience this, who are at the end of their tether, where this has been taken away from them, where they have not done their part and have added to the conflict that exists in their marriages Lord would you do a miracle would you change hearts would you transform situations those whom you have brought together may know and separate Father God pray for those who um, would long to be married Lord I lift them before you and that heart desire that they have <clears throat> pray that you'd meet them there you'd speak dearly to them I thank you, Jesus, that you were completely fulfilled and yet you were not married. And we know that about many others who have followed Jesus faithfully in a fullness of life, yet were not married. But Lord, I do pray for those who long and ask that you would just meet them in the place they're at. Lord, keep us and our children, wherever they are, whatever they're doing in these last moments, may they hear your voice may they be encouraged may there be an ear who will listen to some of the things that no one else is listening to may your kingdom come and your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and that whole area of your peace for those who are negotiating that they would have traction for those who are caught up in such turmoil Lord that you would comfort the widows and the orphans Father thank you that this is your world we trust in you we do not begin to even understand with all these wars and rumours of wars but we put our our faith, our hope and our trust in you. You've never changed. Your ways are not our ways. Forgive us our sins and may we in our context be peacemakers, I pray, Father. In our schools, in our colleges, in our workplaces, in our communities, in our families, may we be known as people of peace. I pray that in the name of Christ. Amen.